Hello and welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. I'm Obadiah Jones, and this is the podcast where I present and highlight new research about the Beatles that helps unravel fact from fiction in the group's history. In this week's episode, I am presenting the research of the leading historian of the Beatles' time in Germany, Thorsten Knoblauch. I invited Thorsten onto the podcast to discuss his research with me, but he was not sure his spoken English was strong enough to discuss the intricacies of the information. Instead, he gave this episode his blessing and told me to follow closely what he had written in his latest book, The Beatles' Mach Schau, in Hamburg. This is one of the beautiful, lengthy volumes published in 2021 by my previous guest, Axel Corinth, at APCOR. Thorsen and Axel were co-authors of the German book Komm gib me deine Hand in 2008, and Thorsen was an important consultant for the first volume Tune In of Mark Lewison's All These Years trilogy. This episode will focus on a new timeline for the final days of the Beatles' first stint in Hamburg. In the Beatles' Machschau in Hamburg, Thorsen presents new evidence that came to light after Tunin's publication and thus alters some of the facts. To reconstruct the events, Torsen writes in the book, one needs to incorporate all the proven facts and leave out exaggerated or condensed stories, being especially skeptical of accounts that were written in letters at the time or in books several years later. It's on the time, and the living bees The Beatles' 1960 trip to Hamburg, where they performed first the Indra and then the Kaiserkeller for German club owner Bruno Koschmieder, was a pivotal moment in their history. During this three and a half months, the Beatles, who at the time consisted of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison on guitars, Stuart Sutcliffe on bass, and Pete Best on drums, went from a mostly unknown amateur group in Liverpool to a tireless force of rock and roll. The beginning of the end of this first trip came when Koschmieder gave the group written notice on the 1st of November. I, the undersigned, hereby give notice to Mr. George Harrison and to Beatles Band to leave on November 30th, 1960. The notice is given to the above by order of the public authorities who have discovered that Mr. George Harrison is only 17 years of age. Now this is strange for several reasons. First, Koschmieder had only just extended the group's contract two weeks before. The original contract was supposed to run from the 17th of August until the 16th of October. On the 12th of October, Koschmieder and Alan Williams, acting as the Beatles' manager, extended the contract to run until the end of the year. Second, the authorities had known the group's ages and birth dates since they had arrived because Koschmieder submitted them in a letter dated the 16th of August to the immigration police, the Fremdenpolizei along with residence permit applications for each of the five Beatles. Probably, the Beatles worked illegally for their entire first trip to Hamburg because their permits were never issued. Their original applications for permits, dated the 17th of August, were not sufficient 
and the group submitted Announcement of Residence of a Foreigner documents on the 25th of August. While the application documents have survived, no actual work or residence permits have. The group's relationship with Koshmiter had not been particularly amicable from the start, nor did Koshmiter get along with Roy Storm and the Hurricanes, who showed up at the beginning of October to take over from Derry and the Seniors at the Kaiser Keller. When, in November, the Beatles and the Hurricanes succeeded in breaking the Kaiser Keller stage, Rory Storm got the blame and was fired. Using George's age as a reason to terminate the Beatles' entire contract was also weird because the rest of the band was of legal age. It seems unreasonably late for the authorities to suddenly wake up to the fact that George was underage and had been playing past the 10pm curfew every night for the last two and a half months. More likely, Koshmiter was looking for a reason to get rid of them and used this as an excuse. Once the band received notice from Koshmiter, however, George could only play with the group until the curfew, at which point they had to carry on as a quartet. Pete Best says that Koshmiter reduced their pay accordingly. So for the month of November, George had free nights after 10, and according to their German friend Jürgen Vollmer, went to the top 10 club where passport age checks were less common. The Jets, fronted by Tony Sheridan, played at the top 10 club for owner Peter Eckhorn. George enjoyed watching them and took note of the better conditions. John always said that the night before George left Hamburg, he stayed up teaching him all the lead guitar parts, but it's more likely that George passed on his parts to John during this month because George could only play the first couple hours each night. In fact, the Beatles actively but unsuccessfully sought out a replacement for George, even writing to Pete Best's friend and former bandmate Charles Chaz Newby in Liverpool. Newby regrettably replied on the 22nd of November, saying he wasn't available until the 21st of December. There were even plans mentioned in letters to move on to Berlin or Munich after Hamburg, but for what will become obvious reasons, these did not happen. The Beatles played their final night for Koschmieder at the Kaiserkeller on Wednesday the 30th of November. At the end of the night, the group went to Koschmieder to collect their final payment, and an argument ensued. Koschmieder demanded they sign a document saying they would not play at any other club in Hamburg. This had already been verbally agreed at the start of their residency. Regardless, the Beatles planned to switch to the Top Ten Club, where they had been offered a job by Peter Eckhorn. It is unknown, however, why Eckhorn offered them a job in the first place, because Tony Sheridan and the Jets were under contract at the Top Ten until the 31st of January 1961, and Jerry and the Pacemakers were due to arrive on the 9th of December and begin at the club on the 12th. In the August 1966 issue of the Beatles book Monthly, Ian Hines of the Jets recalled the Beatles auditioning for Peter Eckhorn to replace them. That audition was rather good. Paul did a Little Richard type of act and the boys sang some lovely close harmony numbers. Needless to say, they passed with flying colors. They started the very next day. This audition possibly happened on the 28th of November, the Beatles' final day off before the end of their Kaiser Keller residency. They certainly did not start at the top ten the next day, but played two more days to finish their commitment. Meanwhile, back in Koshmeter's office in the early hours of the 1st of December, 1.30 a.m. as Paul estimated a few months later, the Beatles refused to sign anything, took their equipment, and left the Kaiser Keller for the last time. They returned to the Bambi Kino, where they had been living in shocking conditions for the last couple months, to collect their belongings and move into the musicians' shared accommodation above the Top Ten Club. 
John and George were the quickest to get out with their stuff, Paul and Pete last. Stuart was already living with his fiancée, Astrid Kirche, at her mother's house. Just before leaving, Paul and Pete decided they would prank Koshmeter by burning a condom tacked to the wall in the corridor outside their room. Over the years, Paul and Pete have altered the story of what actually happened. In the immediate aftermath, Paul made a statement to the German police in January 1961 that said they lit a piece of cord nailed to the bare stone wall. Pete would later say that the whole purpose of lighting anything was to provide illumination to help them see what they were packing. An unlikely story. Whatever happened, it likely caused little damage other than a scorch mark on the concrete wall. Now, moved into the Top Ten Club, John, George, Paul, and Pete slept a few hours. When they woke up later on the 1st of December, at least John and Stuart, but probably also Paul and Pete, went to the foreign police to apply again for residence permits to allow them to stay and work at the Top Ten Club. John and Stuart's applications have survived. Paul and Pete's are not known to exist. Ironically, John listed Koshmeter as his employer, probably because they did not have any formal agreement with Eckhorn. The Beatles likely played their first night of the Top Ten this evening. George would not have reapplied for a permit because he had already decided to go back to Liverpool. He would not turn 18 until the following February, so there was little point in staying if he couldn't work. George may have joined in briefly this first night, but he had to catch the 3.50 a.m. train from Hamburg to the Hook of Holland. We now know the day that George left because Torsen verified with the George Harrison estate that George's passport was stamped in Oldenzaal on the Dutch-German border on the 2nd of December. Astrid, Stuart, and George's German girlfriend at the time, Monica Pricken, took him to the train station in the middle of the night. George remembered the trip in anthology. It was a long journey on my own on the train to the Hook of Holland. From there I got the day boat. It seemed to take ages and I didn't have much money. I was praying I'd have enough. I had to get from Harwich to Liverpool Station and then a taxi across to Euston Station. From there I got a train to Liverpool. I had an amplifier that I'd bought in Hamburg, and a crappy suitcase and things in boxes, paper bags with my belongings around me, and loads of soldiers on the train drinking. I finally got to Liverpool and took a taxi home. I just about made it. I got home penniless. It took everything I had to get back. Back in Hamburg, Koshmeter was furious to find out that the Beatles had played at the Top Ten Club. When he also found out there was a scorch mark on the wall of a cinema, he spitefully reported the group to the police. The same day George was making his way back to Liverpool, Paul was the first to be arrested as he walked down the Reeperbahn, followed later by Pete, and then Stuart turned himself in to the Davidwach police station. I was 17 and when we first went out there and we went to the Indra Club and then got moved to the Kaiser Keller and then that ended up with us getting the gig to go to the Top Ten Club and right before that happened, I got busted for being underage. Now, they had this kind of situation in Germany, which I'd never come across before, which was a curfew. Um, And after 10 o'clock at night, anybody who was under 18 had to get out. And I was only 17. I was sitting in the band, and I started getting worried. And eventually, somebody found out we didn't have any work permits or visas. So they started closing in on us, and the, the police came one day, and then they just booted me out and that was right at a critical time because we decided we'd been offered a job to go to this other club 
which is called the Top Ten. That was the club we 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 were ambitious to play at because uh, it was a slightly better club. It was on the main Reaper Barn, the other Safriot, which is off the main drag. So as we were leaving, uh, me and Pete Best uh, were packing up, and we were the last to leave. And he found a condom in his luggage. And what we did, just for a laugh, was outside in the um, corridor, concrete. There was not, nothing could have caught fire at all. We pinned it up on the wall, and for a boyish prank, we set fire to it. So it left a little sort of little black sort of rubber stain on the wall, and that was like, you know, right, we're going, <laughs> hey, hey, on to better things. But, of course, the fellow wasn't pleased we were going to the new club anyway because this was competition. We were taking all our business, all his business, to this new club. So he immediately rang up the police and we were just sort of walking down the reaper and I was like, come with me. And we were put in jail for about three hours, first time in our lives, you know. Bloody hell, German jail. The new club owners where we were going to came, I think, and gave him a bottle of scotch or something and got us out. In a letter dated the 12th of December to his Liverpool friend Ken Horton, Stuart wrote, I am living in the lap of luxury and contentment, better than the cell I spent a night in last week. I was innocent this time, though, accused of arson, that is, setting fire to the cinema where we slept. I arrive at the club, and I am informed that the whole of Hamburg police are looking for me. The rest of the band are already locked up, so smiling and very brave on the arm of Astrid, I proceed to give myself up. At this time, I'm not aware of the charge. All my belongings, including spectacles, are taken away and I'm led to a cell where, without food or drink, I sat for six hours on a very wooden bench. A light above the door revealed little, and the door shut very tight. Half asleep, at two in the morning, I signed a confession written in Dutch that I knew nothing about a fire, and they let me go. John is never mentioned in any version of the arrest, so he was either not arrested or did not turn himself in like Stuart. It's possible Peter Eckhorn went to the police station to vouch for them, although he did not necessarily bribe them as Paul suggested. With their details documented, Paul, Pete, and Stuart were then released in the early hours of the morning. It is likely that the case was then passed from the David Vach police station to the immigration police to deal with the foreign troublemakers. The Beatles Quartet likely played at the Top Ten Club again on the 3rd and 4th of December, thinking they had dodged a bullet with the authorities. Because they still did not have work permits, this was done, as Paul described to a lawyer in July 1961, on a non-payment basis. In the early morning hours of Monday the 5th of December, however, the immigration police arrived at their lodgings, arrested Paul and Pete, and took them, without their belongings, to a remand prison near St. Pauli. Although Eckhorn again tried to intervene, after being held for a few hours, Paul and Pete were taken directly to Foolsbuttle Airport and deported on a flight to London. Once in London, the boys had to get Pete's mother, Mona Best, to wire them money at Euston Station's post office to afford train tickets home. When they arrived back to Liverpool in the early hours of Tuesday, Paul was met at his front door by his younger brother, Michael, who described seeing an emaciated skeleton that was once my brother. We know that Paul and Pete were deported on Monday because of an official letter sent by the German police on the 28th of March, 1961, which states, The residence ban of the 5th of December, 1960, issued against you that was handed out to you on the same day. 
This letter was sent when Paul and Pete attempted to get permission to return to Germany for the following April. The same day Paul and Pete arrived back to Liverpool, John and Stuart were ordered to report to the immigration police. There they were told that their 1st of December residence permit applications were being denied. At the end of John's application, he hand-wrote and signed a statement saying, I have been informed that I can no longer work here. I am staying here a few days as a tourist and will leave before or on the 10th of December 1960. Hamburg, 6th of December 1960, J.W. Lennon. Stuart, however, was allowed to stay longer as a tourist because he was sponsored by Astrid's mother. Stuart would not return to Liverpool until mid-January. John saw little point in staying without the rest of his group, so he decided to leave on the same 3.50 a.m. night express train the following morning that George had caught five days earlier. Indeed, John's passport was also stamped in Oldenzaal on Wednesday the 7th of December. According to Astrid, John had to sell some clothes to afford the train ticket. It's possible that John played at the Top Ten Club with the Jets on his last night. An amalgamation of quotes was used in the anthology book where John remembered, They were all deported, and I was in Hamburg, playing alone with another group of musicians. It was terrible setting off home. It was a pretty hungry business working my way back to Liverpool. I had my amp on my back, scared stiff I was going to get it pinched. I hadn't paid for it. I was convinced I'd never find England. John arrived back to Liverpool in the early hours of Thursday the 8th of December and woke up his Aunt Mimi at Mendips by throwing stones at her bedroom window and then, when she let him in, asking her to pay for his taxi. The Beatles would not return to Hamburg until the end of March 1961 when they played at the Top Ten Club from the 1st of April until the 1st of July. As part of the efforts to get Paul and Pete's residence ban lifted to allow the group's return, Peter Eckhorn hand-wrote a contract between himself and the Beatles and backdated it to 30th of November 1960. It's unlikely that this or any contract was actually written at the time they finished at the Kaiser Keller. As Mark Lewison shows in Tune In, this was a pivotal point in the Beatles' story where the group could very possibly have disbanded. It was a while before the rest of them even knew that John had returned from Hamburg, and they were now once again in need of a bass player. Furthermore, Pete's drum set and his and Paul's belongings were stuck in Hamburg and would not be returned until later in the month. But instead of breaking up, they rallied. When they played their first dates on home soil, the local audiences could not believe how good they were. The famous Litherland Town Hall performance on the 27th of December was actually their third gig back on Merseyside, after performances at the Casbah on the 17th and Grosvenor Ballroom in Wallasey on Christmas Eve. The story of the Beatles' departure from Hamburg in December 1960 is a good example of how the chronology of events is often condensed or confused in memories and retellings. It is also a good example of how documents are one of the best sources to help reconstruct the past. Credit and kudos goes to Thorsten Knublauch for uncovering many of these documents and piecing the history together.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, or you have additional information about the history presented in one of these episodes, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gimmesometruthpod. I post episode artwork and other relevant visuals on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode.